most avid reader by Bibi Berkey. pretty much how I remember things at the picnic. I think we can say you painted an accurate picture. You should be a writer. There's no point trying to hurt me. It's too late for that. All I want to know is why. Just read back what you've written and you'll know why. Anyone like me, and yes, there are plenty of us, would understand exactly why. Let me just set you straight on one thing. While you thrilled at what you saw as my beautiful body and glamorous looks, I had nothing but contempt for your beauty. You were an exquisitely beautiful girl, Rosalie. All golden fragility, with the kind of face that I could have become obsessed with, let alone my rampant husband. You were like some fine piece of porcelain, delicate and yet eternal. You were exceptional, and get this, you didn't even know it. The most galling aspect of it all. I wasn't going to be the one to apprise you of the fact. Beside you, I was an ungainly lump. You merely confirmed to me the deficiencies I saw in the mirror. That combination of innocence and beauty was deadly. I loathed you for it. Is that it? Is that really all? Is that not enough? Is it too petty for you? And yet you were the one going on about biological imperatives. I was driven by exactly such imperatives. I was protecting my own property. Of course, I've grown out of it now. I have no such battles to fight anymore. I simply don't feel so territorial. But I know I was right to feel it then. I'm tired. Don't you get tired, Monica? We've been emailing each other all day. In between cooking and walking the dogs and all manner of chores, I've been constantly rushing back and forth to the computer. And when I'm not emailing you, I'm in a phantom conversation with you. I tell you exactly what I think. By the time my fingers hit the keyboard, it's all evaporated. I'm tired. Let's finish this. I can't tell you how my spirits sag at your revelation, that your sudden animosity was something as absurd as jealousy. You really destroyed my future for that. What are you talking about? I made your future. I put you on the right track. I brushed away that morsel of infantile craving and guided you towards a finer predilection for contentment. That wasn't my motive, but it's a useful outcome, don't you think? You must learn to let go. You take my breath away. You're so cold-hearted. Were you always like that? How come I didn't notice? Because you had an inexplicable crush on me. And I didn't much like it.
My children are all around me now. B is practising the piano about three feet away. Sam is drawing spaceships with the requisite sound effects. Delia and Tamsin are up to something with the new kittens. We're all in the den. This is usually where we gather once dinner's over and school is a distant memory. Jamie won't be home for another hour. I love being among them. I love all the drive and industry of childhood. The constant doing, doing, doing. They don't wonder what I've done all day. They take it for granted that I did nothing of interest. Sometimes I try to imagine what they'd think of me if I had a calling, a profession or a craft. Would they boast to their schoolmates that their mum had written books? Would they grow up proud of me? I asked Bee once, when she was little, what mummy did, and she answered breezily that I did nothing. That's how they see me, and that's how I've let them see me. It's not true, actually. It's just that I've done nothing of much note. When we were first married and Jamie was a pupil barrister, we didn't have much money. I did a variety of little jobs to earn everyday spending money. I worked in an upmarket florist. I made baby clothes, which I sold in a craft market. I helped a friend with her gardening business. Then, as Jamie's earnings grew, along with the family, I embarked on a lavish project to recreate a perfect arts and crafts home out of our lovely historic house. It occupied every day of my life for about eight years. It is, even by my own exacting standards, exquisite and is featured in several magazines. It occupied my body and my mind for all those years. It helped me survive a painful, self-questioning time as I turned 40. And then there's something about being the centre of a family, of living among growing humans that simply devours your days. You're so focused on them that you don't resent the fact that your own life evaporates. Having children simply throws up a distraction during your own slow decomposition. But it's a most welcome trick. My heart beats with lost happiness at the memory of holding them in my arms for the first time, for breastfeeding them, for napping with them in front of the TV during the day, for walks in the park, visits to friends, their first shoes, their favourite toys. Baking with them, painting with them, planting bulbs, planning party costumes, decorating bedrooms, reading, 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 always reading to them. It was as though I had bent down to tie my shoelaces, and when I looked up, ten years had simply disappeared. What's to stop me writing now? If I were really determined and sure of my abilities, I would have written books despite you. I would have made a name for myself and said, fuck you. I would have challenged you from a position of professional equality, if not superiority. But when I got down to it, I realised the engine that had driven my dreams had packed in and was never going to work again. I knew that if I started writing, I'd be doing it for all the wrong reasons. And what kind of writing would that be? Maybe all I had was an idea all those years ago. Maybe I never would have brought those books to life. I'm tired of thinking about it. As a matter of fact, you can write. It's me who can't write. There. There's a revelation to brighten your day. I've just said, Monica, I'm tired of this. There were times during this bogus correspondence of ours that I panicked and wanted out. I now see that it turned out to be therapeutic in a way. 
It smoothed that bump I constantly keep encountering on the road. I don't want anything from you. I don't want anything from life, other than a little more prolonged good health so that I can see this roll through. This is all over. I repeat, I don't want anything from you. But I want something from you, and you will give it, because it's never too late. Let's not waste time. It's not an issue of my comeuppance or of you divesting yourself of bitterness. We're so much older now than when we met. We can't return to that sunny world of endless possibilities, so sunny that it blinded us to reality. We have a drive too at our age, not like the instinctive one that powers your children, but the momentum we get from entering the second stage, the lead-up to the end. You don't want to dawdle and let it all happen around you any more than I do. You still have it there, in your heart and in your brain. Write for me. Just write. Don't care about your name or about posterity. Do what you always wanted to do. What on earth are you saying? When your first letter arrived, all those months ago, its timing was breathtaking. Only hours before, I'd screamed goodbye to my assistant after she left me, vowing never to work for me again. When I say work for me, I mean, of course, write for me. As she left, she said, Check your emails, you bitter old cow. There are deluded fools out there offering to help you. She was talking about you, of course. I ignored her and went and took a pill. But a couple of hours later, when I woke up, I read your words and found some hope again. Yes, there were people out there who could aid me. If not this nutter, then someone else. How extraordinary. How extraordinary that it was you. No amount of writing courses or self-help manuals can make someone write when she just can't. I mean, I'm good at some things. Dialogue. I can produce dialogue, no problem. Though it kind of comes gushing out and doesn't follow anything logically. It has to be knocked into shape. But the dialogue you read is usually mostly mine. Any descriptive stuff I loathe and I get my assistant to do. She was obliging at first, and even signed a very restrictive but highly lucrative contract, and won't be able to spill the beans ever without paying a hefty price. Oddly enough, the bit I do like is the research. It's all arse about face, isn't it? Writers usually get lackeys to do the research, then settle down to pour out their souls. Well, you've seen that I don't have much of a soul, and don't care enough about other people to want to dissect personalities. I absolutely don't mix with other writers, but I attend all manner of events with my adoring fans because they see no wrong in me, never pick holes. I've discovered that I'm not half bad at journalism, because I can just spout my views in any old order and a sub-editor will neaten it up. It doesn't bother me if he turns to his colleague and whispers, Christ, this woman writes like an imbecile. How did she ever get published? As long as it goes on the page and I keep my name out there, I honestly don't care. Oh, and that bit about reading Sartre was all bollocks. I've lost count of how many times I've dropped that into a conversation. It's a lie. Neither my agent nor my editor care to question how the manuscripts reach them as long as they do. 
I don't care about any long-term consequences, about whether my reputation will be sullied after I'm gone, as long as during my lifetime I can enjoy some form of recognition, if not adulation. You think I'm a monster. Well, don't you crave that love too? Don't you seek it out? You have a family, and it holds you in high esteem, the devoted mother, the matriarch. You are the colossus in their world. I don't have children. Let me have fame instead. But it's all lies. The Hesiod story, the sententious girls, I just made them up on the spot. Everything has been completely spontaneous. With each message I wrote you, I just started a chapter afresh, with no idea where it was going. It was a kind of game, a compulsion. I wasn't writing. So what distinguishes your spontaneous storytelling from what you might think is proper writing? Well, I'll tell you, nothing. To the reader, nothing. Didn't it come as a pleasant surprise to you that you could just sit at a keyboard without any previous research or even thought and produce a highly readable story? Wasn't that a good feeling? You're being ridiculous. Do you know what you're suggesting? Not just scandalous subterfuge, but an almost impossible juggling trick. Scandalous subterfuge? Mm. Not that long ago, you were indulging in the same practice. Your correspondence with me was pure scam, meant to mislead. And the more you did it, the deeper you buried yourself in another persona. I didn't intend to make a living out of it. Do you think anyone really cares? We're middle-class, middle-aged women. Who gives a fuck about us? We are falling into invisibility. All we are is what we can make of ourselves. If we want to invent history, then we can. You will retain your anonymity. That sounds like a poor deal, doesn't it? But actually, you'll get what your heart has desired all these years. You'll make a living from your writing. You will have the satisfaction of knowing that your words will paint pictures in people's heads. You will never have to struggle to get published, to try and convince some venal businessman that your work is worth it. It will get published. And you will do it all from the safety of obscurity. Make something of yourself. Do it for yourself and no one else. And at the same time, warm your heart with the thought that you were always better than me. In every single way. Hilary was played by Rebecca Charles. Monica by Georgina Sutton. Your Most Avid Reader was written by Bibi Berkey, with sound editing by Mark Lingwood. It was made by Tempest Productions and brought to you with the kind support of Rattlesnake Books, an established seller of books, maps, ephemera, art and curiosities. Rattlesnake Books can be found on Instagram, Etsy, Abe Books and Biblio.
Thank you.